can I remember the feeling of wonder? Can I remember the feeling of being completely immersed in the moment? And can my yoga bring me there? And can I teach yoga in such a way that I inspire people towards that? And that they know that they have to find their own way towards that. Not my way, not, you know, whoever's way, but their own way. And it is the, the forging of one's own path. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Glow Podcast. In my conversation with Annie Carpenter this week, you'll be reminded of the importance of cultivating the fierceness of being present. Annie has been a GLOW instructor for many years now, and as a teacher, she is both welcoming and serious, always taking her students to the edge and going there herself. She shares some of the key foundational elements of her teaching system called Smart Flow. Together, we explore how yoga has different meanings in different stages of one's life. The yoga practice, and the understanding of it, of the complex meaning of yoga, keeps changing as we change. It becomes an ongoing question of asking, who am I? And as you get older, Annie says, the who am I piece turns into asking, what is life? I enjoy hearing Annie's thoughts about how we all have moments in life that make us turn the corner or make us commit and dedicate to one thing in a way that we never would have guessed or expected. And that's just how my conversation went with her. There's many moments that I wasn't expecting, like, for example, when we talk about birding. She says that when she sees a bird that she's never seen before, it creates a moment of mindfulness, a moment of being absolutely present with what's happening. I hope you enjoy the many turns my conversation takes with Annie. Hi, Annie. It's so lovely to be here with you. Hey, Derek. Great to see you. Great to be with you. <laughs> yes, great to be with you. You know, I was considering how to kick this off. And one of the things that brought a smile to my face is seeing your cat Jojo on <laughs> your classes on Glow. Sometimes he's just sitting there. I mean, is it a he or a she? Well, there's actually two of them, and they're oh. both girls. There's Jojo and Hazel, and I think Hazel has made an appearance as well. I haven't seen Hazel yet. That's really funny. As I have been interviewing GLOW teachers for the podcast, I've been looking back through old email to remember when we first met, You know, since a lot has happened uh, between then and now. And I see in our case, Sarah Ivanhoe introduced us way back in January 2010, which I'd completely forgotten. So that's really cool. Oh, I had forgotten that also. Yeah. So you know, when I think back then and over the years, there are many reasons why I have always been so excited and grateful to work with you. But as I reflect upon that, central to that, which I think will be ultimately a good transition into your background is you have a decades long commitment to learning. Uh, you seem to consistently welcome and seek out change and growth, your overall virtuosity in your craft, and you have a delivery in your teaching that is, correct me if you see this differently, like both welcoming and serious, but it's a seriousness with levity. And 
know, that may sound a bit contradictory or paradoxical, but I think maybe that's part of your gift. You take us, the students, on a journey that asks us to sit in that creative friction, uh, to learn, to become more and more comfortable with all that it means to be these embodied mortal humans. And you all, like you're inviting us to explore how we can more and more cultivate our discernment, but you're not sugarcoating it either. I think part of your message <laughs> and your energy and how you come across is like, like, this may be hard for you, but do what you can. And with time and practice, I guarantee you, you'll learn more about yourself and you got this. That, that's how I feel when I experience you as a teacher. And I heard you share once how you heard Martha Graham say she only wanted to work with people who move with authenticity. So I'm curious how that all ties together in terms of taking us through your journey from discovering yoga to dance. And then uh, let's pause at how you ended up in Santa Monica. Hmm. Well, thank you for that description. I, I would I would hope that there at least some of that is true for um, some some of my students at least some of the time, um, and I I love levity. I think it's essential to carrying on, um, and I think many of us and maybe many students who choose me as their teacher at least you know for some of their practice time um, are drawn to challenge, are drawn to things that are taking them to an edge. And maybe it's a brand new edge in this moment, or maybe it's an edge that they play with, just like we stick our toe in the water as we have day in and day out over the years, expecting, oh, maybe it'll be warm today, <laughs> you know, knowing that it won't be, right. but we keep trying. Um, you know, I love the edge and I, and I have a curiosity about what will the edge be like today? Again, even if it's an ocean that I've dipped my toe in many, many, many times and finding the thrill, uh, literally the thrill of trying it again today, as if it really might be different, um, uh, is, is I think the beauty of staying interested in, uh, delighted by, um, one's practice and, and the ability to carry on practicing over the decades. As far as authentic, you know, Martha was this fierce, deep, um, uh, almost aggressive at times, um, is, at least this is my relationship with her in her last um, few years. Um, and, and the fierceness is not about getting things right. This is my takeaway. The fierceness is about being present. And to me, that is the, the, the biggest learning I took from Martha. Um, was that sometimes there, there needs to be literally a ferocity about showing up, not about getting the pose right or being able to hold your breath a certain amount of time or sitting on your cushion in stillness for, you know, 39 minutes. Um, but the, the presencing, including the presence of, oh, whoops, I, I went away again, <laughs> come back, <laughs> you know, and that's where the levity is essential. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Martha just wants you to be present and she'd rather have you miserable and present than some fake joy <laughs> mm -hmm. um, or some pretense that um, 
has has no business in the theater, in Martha's technique, and my view in in any of the yoga practices we embark upon. When when we try to make it a way that we think it should be, then we've lost the point. Mm. Yeah. Can you repeat that? When we try to make it the way we think it should be, then we've lost the point. Is that it? Yeah. Or maybe we'll even add the way we think it's supposed to be then we've lost the point. Mm -hmm. And we're no longer present, right? We're trying to turn it into something that exists in our mind. Mm -hmm. So I love how you positioned that message from Martha Graham in terms of the ferocity really being about being in the present and, and how obvious and visible that must be, especially when you're expressing yourself you know, through movement and, and dance. And can you share that arc with us in terms of how you go from there then to discovering yoga and then becoming a teacher and ultimately ending up in Santa Monica. Yeah. Let me just say, if you will, uh, one more thing about that um, presencing idea. You know, if, if Martha could see an authentic expression, um, and I think most of us could um, in, a, in a rehearsal or class setting in that technique, I, I do believe that each of us as practitioners in yoga can sense that about ourselves. And maybe that is the learning curve, is being more and more sensitive to the subtleties of when we start to veer off, being truly present and, and honest and authentic in each moment to whether it's just getting distracted or whether that it, it's that dream about what it could be or should be or fear of what it might turn into, you know, with all of the sort of, if we, if you will, the aversions and the clinging bits that take us out of the moment. Um, and, and I think it's the same process. And as a teacher, um, especially for students that have been with me for years and years and years and years, um, it's very apparent, you know, to quote Martha again, the body doesn't lie. We, we see distraction and whether that's, you know, <laughs> um, and not too many years ago, my eyesight started to be not as good as it used to be. <laughs> and it was really interesting. I didn't realize I was, and it's, it's not like I'm blind or anything, but it, I, what I began to notice was that as I couldn't see was the, you know, gastrocnemius muscle active, but what I could see more clearly were the lines of energy through the body, hmm. right? And, and that in yoga, of course, we call that prana. I don't mean the breath prana. I mean the flow of subtle energy. And so it was very interesting in these years before I realized I actually needed classes <laughs> was that, oh, wow, what I was seeing is, is breakages of energy and excess energy in some areas of someone's body and compressed or blank, you know, energy missing in other areas of the body. And I think that's what we're talking about right now is that when we're in an honest, present, authentic place, the energy flows in a very free, healthy way very unlike, say, Highway 10 or <laughs> you know, any of the giant freeways around Santa Monica. Um, and it, it feels good and everything is easy. And we want to continue and we find these you know, practices where one day, oh, I only have the energy for 30 minutes. But when we get into that place of free flow of prana, we just keep going and everything is fun and easy and interesting. And, and in a word, we are delighted by it and sometimes surprised by it. Yeah, I have fond memories of you coming into the office and reminding me to mind my posture. <laughs> that might be me. <laughs> so, yeah, you were definitely yeah. seeing where energy was stuck in my body, that's for sure. Especially yeah. you know, during a pretty stressful you know, uh, era for us. Yeah. 
two years ago. Mm, I do remember. Um, so the, the transition, if you will, between the yoga and the dance was not like a wall or a left turn or anything. It was a, um, I think for many of us, when yoga is, if you will, second to what we do for a living, um, it is a sort of sanctuary. It's a, oh, okay, I've finished with work. Let me get to yoga. And so I can feel better. And uh, it may seem shocking to people who think dance is this fabulous world, which it sort of is, <laughs> but let's face it, it's fatiguing like everything else you do. Um, and sometimes it's emotional ways, sometimes it's physical ways, it's, it's all of it. Um, and I, just a confession, I really do not have a very competitive spirit and the New York dance scene is a very competitive scene. And so I think for me, it was an emotional and frankly, spiritual drought that I would get into. And so the yoga that I was doing while I was dancing in New York was with Swami Satchidananda at Integral. And it was a very soft, not terribly physical practice. God knows I didn't need that. Um, you know, that was, it was carpeted and it was a lot of chanting and satsang and philosophy and um, and meditation, a couple of poses, but not so much that. But it was the community. It was the satsang of people coming together. That would have been in the 80s? That would have been in the 80s, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was around now and then, uh, Swami Satchananda. And do you know one of the things I remember about him is his lightness. When you would go and when I would go and hear him speak, he would, he would tell jokes. Here's this deep, long-term yogi with these amazing messages that my fairly young mind didn't maybe understand fully yet. And then there'd be this joke and we'd all laugh out loud and we'd relax and it was okay that we didn't get all the layers just yet. Mm -hmm. And then we'd dive in again. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just beautiful. Anyway, it supported me through what was challenging for me at that time in my life. And then it was just this gradual crossover of not performing anymore, teaching at university in a dance department, and then going, oh, I really don't care about how many pirouettes you can do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's sit and breathe together. Mm -hmm. um, and then I took uh, a sabbatical, came to LA and did a training with... Uh, Chuck and, and Mati and Lisa Walford, and that never went back. <laughs> it, it was pretty simple at that point. Mati and Chuck were part of a small group that started the studio that eventually became a larger chain of yoga studios, Yoga Works. It seems like that was the beginning of a special time in Santa Monica, especially as it pertains to yoga. Can you share what it was like with us back then, just the community at the time? It was amazing. It was a truly amazing time. It, it uh, not that I think any of us ever realized how big it was going to all get, literally in terms of numbers, but the commitment to daily practice, the commitment to um, practice being the center of one's life, and so many people who came together around that idea, even different forms at that time. I was a very committed Ashtangi. Many of us went to India several times and during that period to see Patabi Joyce. And that I know that's a whole other story, <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was remarkable. And, you know, to literally be in a practice room with, yes, accomplished, but more to the point, dedicated practitioners and, you know, having the same people beside you day in and day out for years and years and uh, having 
incredible visiting teachers come in and and lead us. Um, and and again, yes, it was an asana practice largely, but but it wasn't. It was it was a way of living. Um, it was, and I don't mean lifestyle. <laughs> I mean a way of living. It was the path that that we chose to. And and given that there were a fair number of people who were also committed, the path seemed easy, even though it wasn't. If that makes sense. Um, there was no concern about, will I make a living at this? There was when Mati said, will you please stay and, and not go back to your university job and, and teach for us? It was, of course, I was going to say yes. Um, not knowing what that meant in terms of, you know, how, how am I going to survive? <laughs> um, but it was where I wanted to be. It was where we all wanted to be. And um, even as we all evolved and, and not very many people stayed in the Ashtanga room for as long as I did. Um, it, it, with that commitment to that style of practice, because it's a challenging one. Um, but, you know, people evolved and the yoga evolved and, you know, the, the, in a word, the more sort of spiritual practices, you know, the Eric Schiffman's and the Shiva Rays came out. And then we had, you know, um, the more vinyasa flow as in core power and um, music started being played. And, you know, it, it was just exciting. <laughs> it was an amazing time. Yeah, I didn't arrive in LA until 2005, and I have a very del or pleasant and fond memory of showing up to an Ashtanga workshop led by Chuck and Madi at some point in 2006 or seven, not realizing mm. that it was way more advanced than than <laughs> was suitable for me. And, and uh, I went over to Maya and said, I don't think this is going to work for me. She said, no, just stay and go in, in the corner. And she made me feel so welcomed and, you know, only adjusted me to the extent that was suitable for me. And I'll never forget that. Mm. Oh, I love so that sweet. story. Yeah, you've you've definitely seen, it would be remiss of me not to ask you that question because you've you've seen the evolution of this Western Los Angeles community in a way that, uh, you know, not many people have seen. I feel very, very lucky to have been part of that, that scene as long as I was and, and when I was, I guess, more to the point. So eventually you create smart flow. <laughs> Can you share with us what it is and how it came about? Yeah. Smart, smart flow is, um, Simply put, I, I would say it's my love of alignment and specificity uh, and, and, in a word, precision uh, in, in as subtle a way as, as possible, moment by moment, and coupled with my love of movement. Um, I, you know, I think I'll always somewhere in, in my spirit be a dancer, even though the only time I dance these days is when I put Marvin Gaye on in the living room, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, uh, movement is necessary. And as much as I love staying in a pose and getting the props out and, you know, using the wall and all this stuff to, to try to get things deeper, more understood, more, more in a word precise and, and right for me, let me say that. Um, not to do the pose as it should be in that book, but to do the pose in a way that enhances the flow of prana. And, and I think that distinction of, wait, I don't, I'm not interested in making this pose that some, say, Indian guy in that popular book did, or 
some very, very flexible woman with long, long legs could do. Um, and, and I'm not interested in that for the, if you will, um, legacy of yoga, uh, the legacy of movement, you know, and that comes back to authenticity. You know, when Martha would move, um, would change a soloist in a, in a piece, she didn't want the new dancer to do it the way the old dancer had done it. She wanted the new dancer to find her way. Mm. Right. And to, to be clear, I was never a soloist. I was the girl in the back row, right? <laughs> Delighted to be in the back row. Um, but, you know, just watching that process and that it is such a huge learning because I can't express myself fully. I can't feel the flow of prana if I'm not doing it my way. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have a teacher who encourages me to understand my own intuitive process, to follow my intuition, then I'll never get there. You know, I, I don't want my students to do what I do. I want them to do what feels right for them. And so, you know, I think in anything that evolves, any art form, and I'm in this case, I include yoga as an art form, once we get clear, we decide, you know, a group of people in power say, this is what it is, then it gets stuck. It's not growing. It's not living. And, and my view is that that's not helpful. And so what I hope that smart flow represents for people is that it is intelligence. It is precise. It is subtle. It is presencing and it's movement, but that at the end of the day, it's, um, it's undercurrent is inquiry self-inquiry so that all of these questions about, well, is it my inner big toe as I release the inner groin back? And what happened to that lift of the kneecap? All of those things are questions for each one of us to answer, even when the answer might be different tomorrow or different today than it was yesterday. So it's it's a living way of practicing, not a, did I get it right yet? And does it look like what Annie thinks it should look like? I doesn't matter. And by the way, my practice keeps changing. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, and 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 frankly, even since Smart Flow was born back in 2009, um, it has changed. There are things that I teach quite differently now than I used to because I've learned. And and part of the learning is just being you know in my 60s now and wow, you know, that really doesn't hold up in a longevity kind of a way. Let's, let's not go that way. So smart flow is in essence that, something that's living and, and welcoming of change. And more specifically, it's a series of what I call movement principles that identify very specific physical continuums in the body. And what that means is that for each and every one of us, you might move more in the direction of what I call an effort, deeper into a pose, whereas someone who might be tender or tighter might move more towards the other end of that continuum, which is called the returning to center. And there are nine primary movement principles that I've outlined, and, and they each one has a group of poses that kind of fit inside of it. Um, and And so rather than working towards poses, we work on movement principles in each practice. And so each one of us can find a depth and a degree along that continuum that's appropriate for where we are in our lives. I love that. It, it's freedom from comparison or the uh, instinct to compare. You, know, you hear so many people say, oh, I can't do that because I'm not flexible or I won't look like what that person 
looks like in a class. And so there's a lot of liberation there. And I like to, absolutely. That, I like to, that there's a, uh, though an acknowledgement of history and what came before, uh, that you're not held to any particular rigid system or, or dogma and that you're really focused on and, and care deeply about like what's happening here and now for both yourself and for students. And absolutely. Can you give us, can you give us an example of when you say movement principles, like what an example of that would be? Yeah. Um, okay. So let's look at, uh, let's look, let's look at MP1, <laughs> which is uh, the blueprint pose here is Tadasana or Samastiti, depending upon your school, the, you know, standing upright mountain pose. And uh, what we look at are the primary parts of the body, which includes the spine, the skull, the rib cage, and the pelvis. And so there are three aspects to MP1. And if we start at the base, we would move the top of the thighs back. That's the effort. And if you keep moving your top thighs back, then what will happen is your butt starts to get behind you and you <laughs> go into your heels or fall over. And so then the returning to center would be moving the sacrum in. And so it's a play of back and forth here. MP1 is all sagittal plane, meaning the plane that moves front and back. And then if you went higher, you would be pressing your shoulder blades in to lift and open the chest. But if that were to go too far, you might soften your bottom sternum down. And true with the, the head and neck, you might inhale, lift the top sternum up, breathing into the sides of the neck. But as you exhale, you might release the top of the forehead, noseward, downward, gazing in. And so they're all supported by the breath. They move with the breath. Um, and, you know, it, it, depending upon people's purport, even something like standing upright, like Tadasana, depending upon your proportions, depending upon your habits, depending upon your sports. I mean, let's say if we have a runner on one side and we have someone who is doing kayaking all the time on the other, the way their body is built and overemphasized needs to be addressed very differently. So for me to say the exact same cueing to a room with people like that in it is, it's just not going to work, is it? Everybody take your thighs back. Well, that's going to work for some people, but not for the the runners, mm -hmm. right? They're going to need to soften the thighs and and turn on the hamstrings. So it, you get the idea. Right. You're setting people up for success and, and to learn how to move mindfully, really. And, and to find their own way right from the beginning. As part of what you're doing with SmartFlow, there is more of a focus on movement principles versus working towards a specific peak pose. Is that correct? And, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that certainly has been a shift from the way I was trained to sequence uh, yoga, you know, many moons ago. Um, what I find is that, you know, most of us teach fairly large classes these days, or we teach online and we can't even see our students. And, um, you know, how do I know how the students are responding to this idea? Okay, everybody, today we're going to do flying pigeon or some other really fun but possibly challenging pose for many of the students. So uh, to me, having a peak pose as your idea, okay, as you're, you know, you're driving to work as a yoga teacher and say, here, we're going to go to flying pigeon today or whatever it is. Um, what that is, is it's got this future goal orientation. And so let's say, let's say three of the students in your class can't get 
close to that post. And so their experience of that is failure. (laughs) (laughs) How was your yoga today? Oh, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and and in a word, they put an L on their forehead, loser. (laughs) Um, And then let's say a few of them were like, yeah, got this. I was fabulous today. And then we'll put an E on their forehead. And that means ego, Mm -hmm. right? Check, check, check. I'm I'm better (laughs) than you. <laughs> right. And and so, you know, rather, can we choose something to work with? Can we play with an, an a clearly identified edge, maybe moving towards deeper hip opening, maybe moving towards trusting our hands, like an arm balance, maybe moving towards shifting the weight from the foot towards the skull, like you would in that type of a pose. Um, but can it be the playing with those elements? Um, and then if you do get there, great. But if you don't get there, doesn't matter because that was never your intention. So the message to the students is let's play with this today, not let's see who can get to this big pose today. You know, one of my favorite things is to sit outside the studio after class and watch people walk out together and hear someone say, oh, yeah, we worked on shoulders today. And, you know, my left shoulder is tighter than my right. And while this may seem, in a word, trite, it is still, who am I? And it's that ongoing sense of how do I live in my body? And ultimately, how do I live with the people around me? And ultimately, how do I live on this planet? I love that it's it's a shift that asks us, you know, how can I be more in service of growth, presence, self inquiry versus the other example you gave, which may in some cases re reinforce the very neuroses from which we are trying to liberate, or which we don't yet know. <laughs> exactly, we may not yet know from which we want to uh, liberate. That's you know causing us unnecessary suffering and harm to others. I love that. Yeah. Ultimately, would you say what we're talking about here can be thought of and defined as mindful movement? Mindful movement as practice in, of course, more obvious ways, say on a yoga mat or a meditation cushion or while dancing, but also as mindfully moving through life? I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> and part of why I ask is I'm curious what your definition of mindfulness is. And I, and I want to get to your definition of yoga and how you convey the complex meaning of, of yoga. But I thought starting with the word mindfulness might be a good entry point into that. Yeah, let's do that. You know, it's, I would say that my idea of what mindfulness is has changed over the years. Um, and I, I'm going to say where I am right now is to be mindful is to be absolutely present with what's happening right now. And so I would take that a little further by saying, by inviting all of us to, um, to figure out, you know, a a little list of things that help us get there quickly. Um, Like for example, and Derek, you and I have talked about this a little bit before, you know, for me, to go outside and to hear a bird that I don't know and to grab my binoculars and look, you know, there's nothing else in the world. I don't care if I'm halfway under a freeway. <laughs> you know, if I hear that, zoo, 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 and I say, oh, wait, is that a Cooper's hawk? 
no, that's got to be a peregrine. <laughs> and it's just all of me is in that moment. And, uh, you know, I think we need this. Yes. Do I do that in Downward Dog? I certainly try to. <laughs> do I do that when I'm breathing? I certainly try to. But I think it's as important to find these access points that are, in a word, guaranteeable, that it's going to take me to right here. You know, t time and space go away. And that is a, a, a remarkable habit to, to be able to trust. You know, I was talking to a friend about um, the third chapter of Patanjali's Sutras just, I think it was yesterday, because it's not talked about very much. But in, in that chapter, I think it starts at about 310, 311 maybe, he lists these what he calls cities, which I like to call superpowers. <laughs> and there are these funny things like uh, when you achieve this level of samyama or yoga, um, then you'll be able to know the exact time, day, and method of your death. You'll be able to talk to animals. You know, all of these amazing superpowers. Mm -hmm. And But if you look at the big list, and at first it seems sort of silly and ridiculous, but if you look at the big list of all of the powers, all of the cities, it really is being in, in the headspace of not needing to rely on time or space. And when you float in that, you know, not needing those human constructs, then all of these things are possible. You don't, you have, of course, you know when you're going to die because it's not tomorrow or the next day. It's no different from this moment. Of course, you can speak to people on the other side of the planet because there is no sense of space. And I think, I hope <laughs> to be very mindful is to get to that point where even for a second, the, the need to define things, even in time and space, might disappear. And I think that really is a kind of liberation that I know I'm longing for and have only experienced occasionally. How do you think of, let's take time, for example. How do you think of, because I, I typically, when I read the, the sections in those texts that talk about CDs, I tend to kind of move past them pretty quickly and on to the next, mm -hmm. next topic. <laughs> uh, you know, I find, and I know this is not how you, you mean to express it, but I, I find that sometimes people can turn certain texts or, uh, systems or you know, ways of considering yoga as method and goal as a, a liberation model that results in some kind of exemption or extrication from what all other people are not exempt from. And so take time, for example, uh, you have a bill that's due at the end of the month. Like you are, you are not exempt from paying that bill. So I know you're not talking about it in that level. I think, you know, based on what I know about you and how you teach and how you convey the philosophy, it, it's, it's a virtuosity of being in the world not being out of the world. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, you know, it's interesting because at the end of that little list of what I call superpowers, he then says, and all of these are distractions too. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's like, let's not get caught up in the goal in spite of, wow, this is kind of exciting. And, and wouldn't it be interesting to experience this for a moment? But that is not the point. Um, and, right. and the point is to somehow have the ability to know that exists and live in it, you know, two feet in the muck, even though your heart or your spirit is capable of seeing, sensing, knowing all of it beyond the muck. 
Right. Um, and yes, that I, that is the great gift I think of of a true yoga practice is not wanting to transcend beyond, but to be transcendent within. Yes, yes. Work with the muck, both within ourselves and with each other. Be on the lookout for bypass. That leads us to yoga. How do you typically speak to the word yoga and how do you tend to either define it or convey its complex meaning? Hmm. Yeah, it is complex. I have to say that the thing that has been with me um, the most in the last number of years is how much yoga is capable of morphing and changing with our needs. Um, and so then the word journey just doesn't feel strong, clear enough. Uh, it feels like sort of a murky, um, not enough uh, clarity. But I can't say, you know, when I was in my teens, when I first started yoga, you know, it was a very important thing to help me learn how to relax because I was stressed out um, for reasons we don't need to get into. And then in my 20s, it was a way of being with community in a, in a supportive and safe way. And in my 30s, then I needed the activity of Ashtanga. And then in my 40s, I needed the alignment and the started to need the breath and started my meditation practice. And then I'm like, yeah, are you with me? And so it keeps changing. And I think, and yet it is still my yoga practice. So as I kind of sift through, it's like putting a sieve through and what, what stays, what always is there. And it is the ongoing self inquiry of who am I? And with the ongoing inquiry of who am I, as I'm older, the who am I piece gets what is life itself. I'm less interested in the singular I and more interested in what is life and what is the, um, you know, in yogic terms, we say, what is the small S self relative to the big S self? What is the Atma, the single soul, as opposed to the full, um, you know, the Purusha, if you will. And, um, and living with that question, living with that question, and even the doubts that arise around that, and they do, we live in the world, mm -hmm. um, is the yoga for me. Who am I? What is meaningful? What is a soul? And what's the relationship of my spirit with life itself? And how am I responsible to that? And that becomes clearer and clearer as we see our world fall apart, Derek. Mm -hmm. Can I remember that everything I do, say, and even think impacts all of life, not just me, not just, you know, my partner, but everything I think, say, do affects the whole web that we call life. So I want to ask you, you mentioned yoga sutras, but it, I'm curious, is there a particular text or combination of texts uh, that you tend to go back to for your own learning you know, that, that may just simply inform how you get by, get through, optimize what it means to be human? And I mentioned in one interview, I heard you mention Upanishads. Um, you know, is there one particular Upanishad that 
you tend to spend more time with? I do love the Upanishads. Uh, I do keep coming back to them. Um, I, yeah, this one, and I'm going to mention this one in particular because I think a lot of people have read it and will know what I'm talking about. It's called the Kata. Um, and it's Kata is the, one of the names of the Lord of Death or the Underworld. And it's a, a really interesting story about a teenage boy who literally knocks on the door of, of the underworld and goes inward, we'll, we'll call it hell, <laughs> um, and waits for the Lord of Death to return. For uh, three days, he waits. And the backstory is that he's been fighting with his father, and he finds that his father is, um, let's just say, overly materialistic, uh, concerned about appearances and who has more cows and you know all of that. So he's down there, and he wants to hear it from the Lord of Death, what really matters in life. And the Lord of Death, because he had to wait for three days, he gives them, he grants him three bones or three wishes. And, and first um, he says, oh, let me give you, um, let me give you beautiful women, beautiful virgins. <laughs> and the kid, you know, you would think that a, a young teen would say, oh, cool. <laughs> uh, but no, he says, no, no, I, I want you to tell me the truth. What is the meaning of life? And so he says, okay, well, I'll give you riches. I'll give you, I can't remember exactly, jewels and a palace. And He lays it on thick. He, he throws he it on. He lays out. it on heavy. And then yeah. the third, and each time, yeah. uh, the boy says, no, tell me the meaning of life. And finally, at the end, the Lord of Death, in essence, bows down to the boy and says, the fact that you are at death's door, continuing to ask what the meaning of life is, says that you may understand it better than I do. <laughs> and and you will really understand it when you go and return and be in relationship with your father. So go home <laughs> and bring this wisdom, this honesty, and and bring it in such a way that you make peace with your father, um, not in an arrogant. Well, I understand what really matters, and it, and it's just really sweet. It's kind of what um, you and I spoke of earlier. This idea of you know, is the goal of yoga to escape? No, the goal of yoga is to be able to be wet with in very kind, compassionate, honest ways. Um, and whether you're a teenager or the Lord of death or, you know, an important person, it's not the point. The point is, what are you willing, what are you willing to sacrifice to find out what really matters? Yeah, I love that. It seems to be a meditation on the good versus the pleasant. Absolutely. Well said. Yes. Too much pleasant and you may fail in your aim. And it brings us back to discernment. Like the task is discernment. Mm. You know, doing the right thing is not always a pleasure. Um, and not all pleasures are, are right. That is one of my favorite. I, I was introduced to that one in college. So that's discernment. That's the Kata Upanishad. Oh, the Kata? Yeah, that's one of my, that's, it's, it, that has a special place in my heart. It's got the parable. It's a great one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's got the parable of the you, chariot. It's where we learn about the razor's edge, you know, the importance of interiorization and controlling. The absolutely. Senses. Yeah, there's a lot there. You know, following on from our conversation earlier about what is yoga, I heard you say in an interview, I, you and I have not spoken about this, so I don't know exactly your feelings about it now, uh, but you had mentioned that 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought of taking a walk on the beach with intention and attention and presence as yoga. But today 
you do. Hmm. Can you share with us the evolution and that understanding? I'll try. I, I have to say there sometimes I, I roll my eyes at that thought and, and it is my truth. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. For, for so many years, if I wasn't, you know, in a yoga studio with other yogis or at home on my mat or on my cushion, you know, it didn't count. And, and that was, um, you know, my calendar first thing every day <laughs> forever is yoga practice and everything else has virtually always fit around that. Um, and then, and then as I, as I, you know, love the inquiry, as I keep inquiry, well, why do I practice and what do I hope to gain from practice and what do I hope to inspire others to gain from, from their practice? Um, I, I realize that it is, um, sometimes important to, to step away from the habits. And, and I mean that in the same sense that you just were talking about the habits of, ego of, of wanting to be successful in a certain way, or, you know, all of those material world things. Um, but we also have habits in the way we breathe and we have habits in the way we stand and move. And sometimes we're so busy and so fraught that the habits become who we are and we can't even ask questions about those habits. And so maybe from time to time, we need to drop the habit altogether of having the practice look like a practice and take a walk. <laughs> and and I don't mean go to a coffee shop and hang out with your girlfriend, although that's fine too. <laughs> um, but um, I do think there needs to be a solitude to practice for me anyway, um, th especially this sort of practice. I need to intentionally say, oh, today I'm going to go up into the hills and walk through the redwoods. Or today, I'm going to go to the beach and walk on the beach um, as if I were alone, e even if I'm not. And, and let whatever arises in that moment, you know, the feel of the sand, the coolness of the wave, the breeze, the sound of the seagulls in the distance or, you know, in the redwoods. Maybe, maybe I'm seeking to hear that owl again, but I, I can still, the, the silence of the redwood forest is just remarkable and, and to 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 allow that to almost feel like that silence is inside of me instead of outside of me. You know, that's transformational in the same way that a meditation practice, or, you know, any of the yoga practices is for me at this point in my life. I don't know that it would have been had I even considered it 20, 30 years ago, but for me it is um, to, to hold um, something that, gives me a feeling of awe and to let it enter me in a very simple, uh, not desirous, but it just, a, just being in it. And so it enters me, um, is, is deeply, deeply transformative and, and necessary. Mm, it's beautiful. Gives me chills. Yeah. You know, you could be as a listener, you could be listening halfway across the world and it's uh, with a high probability that, uh, either your teacher uh, with whom you take classes with or maybe just took a class with this this morning or this evening uh, was either taught directly by Annie or you know, through degrees <laughs> of separation. And I think it's really powerful for someone like yourself who you know, is considered such an influential and impactful teacher's teacher to convey this ongoing openness to expanding the meaning 
of yoga like mm. that. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. I've heard you speak quite beautifully about the breath and about your relationship with trees and birds. And I think that'd be a wonderful way to wrap up our conversation. Mm. So which one of those- Thank you for that. Which one of those do you want to tackle first or, or are they all intertwined in some way? And I, I just want to mention, I want to give a shout out to, uh, at Cornell, there's a, there, is it their ornithology, uh, yeah, the, group with the they, lab of ornithology at Cornell. Yeah. So they, their app just got recently updated with a sh the Shazam for bird calls. And so I used it for the first time, uh, two mornings ago, and it was wonderful to see that it actually worked really well. It's crazy. Yeah, actually, the app is called Merlin, right, Merlin. if anybody's interested. Yes. And it's a free app, and it's really easy to use. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some <laughs> I love that. There was some kind of quail nearby, which was I discovered, which is cool. I wouldn't have known that otherwise. Oh, that's awesome. Where were you? Uh, in the western part of Los Angeles. Oh, it's probably California quail. Awesome. Yeah. Did you see it? They have little funny things on their mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're super cute. <laughs> They're really cute. Look like, like little roadrunners. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I one of the things I love about birding um, is, A, I started birding when I was in high school. I had a wonderful science teacher, George. Um, and uh, I went to this one of those open schools, and we could design our uh, curriculum. And so my science curriculum was find, I can't remember what the number was, 75 birds and identify 50 trees and, you know, like that. Um, and so one morning we went canoeing out in the reservoir where I grew up in Virginia. And he said, Annie, if we're lucky, we're going to see a prothonotary warbler. And there are these tiny little bright yellow warblers and they have a really sweet whistling call. And I'd never seen one before. And we saw one. And in the birding world, we talk about a, they say, what's your spark bird? And that is most of us have had a moment where we saw this bird that went, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> and in the same way that the, the silence of the redwood forest enters you, this brilliance of this bird and this clarity that these creatures are virtually unchanged for, I don't know, 65 million years, you know, it's, it's just exciting. And, and, um, can I pause you there? Yeah. So I think I had a spark bird moment at the, very recently, like just a couple mornings ago around the same time, this bird had this magnificently light blue head and then some yellow and brown and other, um, you know, more muted colors going on, but the color of this light blue, it, it gave me chills. And I, so I, I tried to find what it was and I think it might've been a lazuli bunting. And I don't know if you know what kind of bird that is, but it, oh, that's yeah, what it was. Those are gorgeous. Really and, yeah. That's probably what you saw, but you probably saw a female because the blue, the boys are almost all blue and the girls have those other colors underneath, okay. but it's the blue when the sun is on it. It's, it's shocking. Shocking. Yeah. So, so oh, good for you. Hey, you're a birder. Okay. Next time in town, <laughs> I'll bring my binox and we'll go. All right. Sorry to interrupt you. But I, I love it. Are you that. kidding? <laughs> <laughs> right. So this spark bird thing. And even though, you know, after that, uh, I lived in New York and saw mostly pigeons and, you know, <laughs> there was a pause in my <laughs> active birding. Why do you never um, see baby pigeons? Because they're good parents and they build good nests okay. and they're hidden away. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> I love it. I've always wondered that. Um, but, but I think that, you know, whether you're a birder and it's a spark bird or whether you're a yogi and it's a feeling of being in a flow class with people you love, moving and breathing together, you know, we, we have these moments in life that make us turn a corner or make us commit and dedicate to some one thing in a way that we would never have guessed, perhaps, or never have expected. Um, you know, it's that idea of seeing someone across the room and can you fall in love in a moment? You know, it's it's that, that same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That happened to me with, um, with my wife. Yeah, I, of course it did with you. <laughs> I know, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and um, anyway, I, I think that uh, anything that brings us you know, in a word to our knees, and, and by that I mean to devotion, um, with thrill and presence and excitement, and again, everything else goes away, is something that we're kind of looking for in, in every aspect of our lives. We're looking for something where, where meaning is so clear. And it doesn't mean that all I care about is seeing birds and I have this giant life list with what we call it in the bird world. That's not, that's not the point. The point is... Like to see the wonder and the awe in, in the mundane. Precisely. It's the wonder. It's the, the thrill of... There are thousands of these birds. Mm -hmm. it, and, and frankly, I thrill at pigeons. I love watching pigeons. <laughs> um and, and can I find ways to recreate that? Uh, and not that it has to be that big, like a spark bird all the time, but can I remember the feeling of wonder? Can I remember the feeling of being completely immersed in the moment? Mm -hmm. And can my yoga bring me there? And can I teach yoga in such a way that I inspire people towards that? And, and that they know that they have to find their own way towards that. Not my way, not, you know, whoever's way, but their own way. And it is the, the forging of one's own path with, with the idea of returning to wonder, remembering wonder is maybe a better way of saying that. That makes me think of the line in uh, The Prophet, I believe by uh, Khalil Gibran, if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. Oh, I love that. Your pain would not seem, yeah, wow. And that's just it, isn't it? That, oh, the pain is here and the joy is here. Mm -hmm. And the pain is gone and the joy is gone. Mm -hmm. And yet we put the, the foot in front of the next one. We continue. And for me, the other piece about, you know, the, the bird in the tree or the canoe in the swamp um, or walking in the redwoods is that it's also the remembrance that, you know, it, it, it's not human centric. <laughs> um, it's, it's so easy to live our lives as if the human life, the human will, the human goals were all that mattered. Um, and, and I think that diminishes our experience of the whole world, but even our experience of ourselves and, and all of our relationships. And, and in the same way that, you know, I might finish a, a practice often by saying, you know, may, may any benefit that I receive be of benefit to all beings everywhere. What I mean by that is, you know, everything I do, can it be of benefit 
you know, to to the to the pigeons, to the uh, caterpillars that the the prothonotary warbler needs to eat. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, can I can I in, embrace and enjoy the the spider webs because the spiders too are part of the diet of the hawk and the right. It's it's so interconnected and it's so beautiful, um, and and it's in that way of seeing the world, there is no wrong, there is no good or bad, there is no, um, well, this matters and that doesn't matter. It's all the same. We are one. And to live with that is not to look at injustices that happen to me or to someone I love, is not to seek um, privilege or I deserve this and they don't deserve that. It's it's all of that fades. It's not even a struggle. It just doesn't come up. To live in the world, remembering that I am part of all of it, life itself, any vibration, I affect that vibration. When I die, I go back to stardust. I mean, that's that's real. That's physics. And my prana, who knows where it'll go? Be fun to know, but it's okay. We are one. That's the yoga. Hmm. Well, if we were recording video, I think you would see uh, slight tears in both of our eyes right now. Mm. That's lovely. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. That's a wonderful place to end our conversation. Before we do, is there anything upcoming in terms of workshops or... Uh, anything you're offering, whether it be online, um, I know through your website, um, you can find courses that you offer online, which are fabulous or wonderful courses. Um, maybe you can just share where people can find you and if there's anything else you'd like to, to share or promote. Thank you. Um, yeah, my website is anniecarpenter.com and I, I'm only leading the advanced trainings these days. Um, so 300 and, and above, um, and I have to say what's, uh, yes, I'm teaching all of the physical asana work still, but uh, more and more like my upcoming workshop in uh, early October is on the koshas. And I love the image of the koshas. That's the she's, she's of the, of the body moving inward towards Ananda. Um, and that's the, it's the trajectory of yoga, isn't it? That we start in the outer physical and we move into the breath and we moved into the outer layers of the mind and into discernment. Right, Derek, that's for you. And then all the way into Ananda, which is bliss. And every yoga practice we do, that's the direction. Thank you so much, Derek. This was so fun to be with you. Thank you, Annie. Likewise, it was so fun to be with you. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, our Red Cub agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, Take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.